Well, good evening. Now, uh, a few weeks ago, we were studying on major doctrines in the Bible, and we were talking about special revelation, uh, and we differentiated between general revelation, which is God's revelation to all mankind of His existence, and we know that the Bible teaches that that that's uh, visible by the Lord's creation. So that's, that's kind of given to us in Romans chapter 1 as well as Psalm 19. But there's also special revelation. And we know what that is, I hope. And that's the revealed truth given to us from our God specifically. And that is given in the Word of God. In His laws and His statutes. So... Someone asked, and I don't know if the individual is here tonight. If, if not, I would have changed my sermon subject. Uh, but she asked the question about uh, the canonization of Scripture and or why do we have the books that we have and why were certain books left out? And I studied during the week and I thought about how to best expose you to this without drowning you. And using a lot of terminology that you would have no idea what I'm talking about. And so I, I kind of got to the place this afternoon. I told Natalie, here's how I'm going to do it. I want to give you how the Old Testament attests to its own authenticity. Because this, hello, Tokyo. <laughs> I joked with Craig about the fact that he, had to, that he had to preach this morning if something happened to me. And he was... <laughs> But tonight I'm thinking about just letting him come up here and talk about canonization. But I, I, again, I don't want to confuse you, but here's what I'll do. I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the Old Testament. Uh, and then I want to talk to you about the New and how that looks with canonization. Uh, define that for you. And then instead of me uh, continuing to talk about it, to get deeper and deeper and deeper, I'm going to let you ask any question that you have, Okay. And I'll go as deep as you want me to, or as, whatever your question is. If I don't know right offhand, uh, maybe I need to think about how to answer that question. I will. So that's the goal. So I'm putting my glasses on, and we're about to roll. Okay? Let me show you a couple of verses that speak profoundly to this subject first. And that is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The Bible says, All Scripture... Is breathed out by God. God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice, all Scripture is given by inspiration or breathed out by God. And then, of course, we have to stop here and ask the question, what Scripture is he referring to? And at the point of this writing, who would, who would, Timothy, who would Paul be referring to? What, what scriptures? The entire Old Testament, right? Because you didn't have uh, the New Testament written out at this point and gathered together uh, in, uh, as we see it you know, in, in the scripture, the 27 books of the New Testament. So, he said all scripture, notice, is breathed out by God. Another very important scripture for us is found over in 2 Peter. 
This is just to start off and kind of give you handles on what's going on when we talk about canonization and or when we talk about scriptures. Listen to the word of the Lord, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21 is highly important. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we see all scriptures given by inspiration of God. And we see the superintending work of the Holy Spirit in the process of giving us the word of God. The scriptures. So put those two things together. Now, when you deal with definition and development of what we call canonization, what exactly are we talking about? Well, the root meaning of canon comes from kanon, which is the Greek, a Greek word, which means a rod, a ruler, or a standard of measurement. So in theology, we would say, what is the rule and what is the standard uh, for normative writings to be brought together and put into what we have today? 39 books of the old 27 books of the new. What, what is it that hits that standard or rule? And so when we describe the canon of Scripture, so when you, if you've ever heard anyone say, we have a, the canon of Scripture, that's where that's coming from. Have you ever heard that word and wondered, what in the world does that mean? Well, thus, canonization would mean the process of how things got into the canon of Scripture, meaning that rule or standard of, of the scriptures that we have. Alright? So, we have the sacred books in, given to us in the Word of God, uh, such as Deuteronomy 31. Uh, and, and now, with saying that, let me remind you that uh, how, the, the church did not determine or define the books in the, in the canon. In reality, the church did not create the canon, but received the canon that God created for His people. In other words, the church recognized the canonical books as spiritually superlative writings by which all other books would be measured and found to be of secondary value. Okay, So the church then did not decide which books belonged in the canon, but only affirmed the books that God had inspired. That's a total different scenario than the church thinking they have the right to decide. And when I say the church, I'm going all the way back to as, as far as you can think. I mean, think about we've been studying the book of Acts. And you, and you get up to, say, 60, 65 A.D. and 75 and, and 100 A.D. We're talking about very early on when these books were in circulation. So, I want you to think about that first. And then, uh, the Old Testament canon. What, what would we say... Uh, about the Old Testament and the development of it. First, let me tell you that Jesus, by the time of Christ, the Old Testament canon had long been decided. In other words, when, when Jesus walked the face of the earth, he accepted the 39 books of the Old Testament. Okay, He even says this, and I'll show you that in the Word of God. But what about the Old Testament's own attestation to the fact that those were inspired books, that they accepted those 39. Well, just scan through a couple of places for me. First, uh, who, who actually wrote the first five books of the Bible? Do you know? That's right. And here's what Moses would say 
in chapter 31, verse 24 of the book of Deuteronomy. 31, chapter 31, verse 24. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book, to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to take this book of the law and put it by the, by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. So here we have Moses completing what we call the Pentateuch, which is the giving of the law and or the law. And we would take that from Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy. Is, is those five books were written by Moses. And then, if you look in Joshua 24, verse 26, Joshua added to the book of the law. Joshua 24, verse 26. This may be more information than you ever wanted, but someone asked the question, so that means I have to address the subject. Joshua 24. Some of you are like, you know what? I hold a copy of the Bible in my hand. I'm good with that, right? But you do need to know why. And the fact that you not only hold a copy, but it's a reliable, preserved word of the living God. So Joshua 24, 26. The Bible says, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. So you have the first five books of the Bible. Then you have Joshua. And then uh, 1 Samuel 10, 25. Samuel added his words. He added his writings. 1 Samuel 10, 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And then how about the prophets? So look in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. How are you doing? Do you know your Bible drill? Right? Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. Listen to how Daniel uh, referred to prophets that he's writing his book and yet he re refers to earlier prophets. That's how the Bible attests to its own authenticity. Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So here is Daniel, one of the prophets, referring to Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then... Uh, the Old Testament canon was the Bible affirmed by Jesus Christ. Listen to Luke 24. If you want to make your way there. Luke 24, verse 27. 24, 27. The Bible says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them to them in all the scriptures the, thing concerning, the things concerning himself, and also in Luke 24, 44, even clearer. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, how about this, must be fulfilled. So, I just tell you that for the progressive development of the Old Testament. So here's what we know. We know that when Jesus 
held uh, a copy, a scroll, or whatever. At the time of Christ, he would have taken Genesis to Malachi as the Word of God. Period. So there's not a lot of argument, really, about the Old Testament. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory how the Bible uh, would do that. And uh, I mean, to me, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 is pretty clear. All Scripture is given by inspiration. So there's not a whole lot of debate on the authenticity of uh, the canonicity of the Old Testament. All right, any questions on the Old Testament? It's good for you to know those Scriptures. It's good for you to be able to say, well, I know that we can say that the Old Testament is inspired and we have 39 books, but we can also look into the Bible and pick out those verses that actually speak toward the subject of its own authenticity. And that's important. I'm fine with holding the Bible, Genesis through Malachi, that Jesus endorsed. Right? Okay. Any questions on that part? Okay. Now, let's talk about the progressive development of the New Testament canon. All right. The New Testament refers to Old Testament law and prophets. So Matthew 5. Let me show you a little bit of this. Matthew chapter 5. A lot of Bible turning, I know, but that's okay. Matthew 5, verse 17. So Jesus is making a statement regarding his own life in regard to the Old Testament. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then again in Luke 24, 27, which I've just read that to you, that beginning with the law and the prophets, he began to explain all of those scriptures in light of himself. I tell you all the time that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, and thus he says that to us, right? That how he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Paul quotes Luke as scripture. 1 Timothy 5.18 This is internal evidence of the Scripture. 1 Timothy 5, verse 18 For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So here is Paul, with already knowing in circulation what Luke has written by oral tradition and or had been written down, and Paul is actually quoting it. Paul's letters circulated among the churches. So Colossians. Note this. Remember, when would we learn the chronology? Uh, what book of the Bible would help us know the chronology of the times that Paul would have written his epistles? Well, it's the book of Acts that we've been going through so long. Without those journeys and the geographical understanding, there's no way for us to be able to pinpoint when the books could have been written. Colossians 4.16, the Bible says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Laodicea. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So the circular nature of Paul's written letters 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 27. If you don't have time to turn to it, just write them down and listen. 
5.27, I put you under an oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. So there's a, uh, the book of Thessalonians, or First and Second Thessalonians, in particular First Thessalonians having been read. Peter had at least some of Paul's letters and called them Scripture. Second Peter 3, 16. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. We could say amen to some of Paul's writings, right? Uh, here is Peter saying that some of those things are hard to understand, but he's given uh, Paul's letters are seen by Peter as the written word of God. So, conclusion. When we think about New Testament, we, we really... I'm, I'm, a, I'm going to speak kind of from the top of my head with what I've studied. But when we start talking about New Testament books, that's where it gets a little more difficult to figure out uh, how to put them in canonized form. Well, again, the books were given as inspired books, and it wasn't the church's job to figure out which ones were inspired, but they were given as inspired books. But there were certain credentials that you used... Uh, in order to figure that out. And so let me give you a couple of those. A couple of places I have them written down in two sections of notes. Let me give you these. This will be the best way to do it. All right. The test involved the following issues. Was the book authored or sanctioned by an apostle or a prophet? That was vitally important. Apostolic uh, succession, we may say. Uh, did, were they eyewitnesses? of the resurrected Lord, uh, were there apostles? And keep in mind that the last apostle died on the Isle of Patmos around 90 to 95 A.D. There are no modern-day apostles, folks. No matter what they call their churches, they're not, okay? The last one made an apostle, of course, was born out of due time, and his name was Paul because he saw the resurrected Lord. Number two, was the book widely circulated? Okay? Number three, was the book Christologically centered? Was Christ the center of what was written? If he wasn't, then it was not the Word of God. Was the book orthodox, that is, faithful to the teachings of the apostles? And five, did the book give internal evidence of its unique character as inspired and authoritative? Now that's what I spent time doing starting off is to make sure you understand that they speak of their own authoritative and inspired understanding. Uh, so, in other words, not only do we say the Old Testament 39 books are inspired by the Lord, and that's the canon of Scripture, but by extension, those 27 books are the Bible. Now, again, I want to remind you that all the other books that have been added... Uh, apocryphal writings, and we could spend the night on those if you want to. I can go through all 11 or 12 of those. That's no big deal, no problem with that. And normally, your Catholic Church and your Greek Orthodox are going to include those 11 or 12 apocryphal writings. But keep in mind that it was not until 1546 at the Council of Trent that the Catholic Church decreed that the 11, 12, if the letter of Jeremiah is counted separately, books listed above should be included in their canon. Now, folks, we had established the 39 books of the Old 
and the 27 books of the New before 200 A.D. So 1,350 years later is when the Catholic Church added the apocryphal writings to the Catholic canon, which we do not accept. Okay? So early on, early, early on, those books in circulation, the early church never, ever, ever even thought about accepting apocryphal writings. As a matter of fact, Athanasius and many of the early church fathers said the canon is closed with 39 old, 27 new. Even the church fathers that some raise up to be equal with Scripture, which is anathema, those very church fathers did not accept their own writings as inspired. Only the 39 of the old, 27 of the new. Now, when we say the Bible is inerrant and infallible in its original writings, what we're saying to you is that when it was written by Paul or by Moses or by Jeremiah, whoever wrote those books of the Bible, when they wrote that, superintended by the Holy Spirit, what they wrote was inerrant and infallible. No error and no, no possible way of leaving you, leading you astray, and there's no mixture of error whatsoever. Now, we don't have any of the originals, okay? We only have uh, manuscripts, but we have a ton. We have over 5,000 manuscripts, and some date within as close as 30 years of the time of Christ. That is phenomenal. We have no writings like that. Nothing compares to that. So what you do is you take 5,000 manuscripts, think about this, and you lay them out in front of the scholars in this world with variant readings, and 99.5% of everything touched in those 5,000 manuscripts agree. That is amazing, isn't it? It's absolutely amazing. So not only did God preserve and give us His Word, not only did God give us His inspired Word, but it's, it's the same God that has supernaturally preserved His Word for us. So that when you have a copy of the Word of God, Genesis through Revelation, you are holding up the truth of God's Word given to us for His people, which is our life in practice. God has nothing to, else to say to His people. That's why we believe in a closed canon. Closed canon means... You don't add to it, and you don't take away from it. Does that make sense? Okay? So, there's not only the self-evaluation of the Scripture for its own validity and veracity, but there's also how the church looked at these writings. And nothing else compares to Genesis to Revelation. It really doesn't. No other book can even hit case one out of those five that compares to the measuring standard that the church used to uh, put their stamp of approval on the books of the Bible. Now, when you get to Luther uh, in the Reformation, he struggled with James. Why? Because James seemed to be contradictory to Romans. Uh, Paul says you're saved by grace through faith. And James turns around and says, well, if you're saved, your faith will work. Right? There's no conflict there. It's the truth. You are saved by grace through faith, but you're saved by grace through faith. That will work. Right? Right? Uh, 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 Luther struggled with Revelation because uh, it's apocalyptic in literature. Well, so is Daniel. And I hope to preach through Daniel uh, starting in the fall. But when you get to chapter, most preachers will preach Daniel 1 through 6. When you get to chapter 7, they're like, oh, let's do another book. But we're going to grind through 7 through 12. All right? So, any questions on the canonist of Scripture? Yes, ma'am.
Absolutely. We would talk about historical writings, which Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, uh, Ecclesiastes would fall more in the historical writings. And although Jesus didn't mention those, uh, again, uh, the Hebrews saw, and I didn't want to go into this detail, but the Muratorian canon, which was actually as early as, I mean, that, that was early on. That was by 165 B.C. In other words, it was accepted way before then, but when you got to 165, there was a council that took place in Jamnia, and by that time frame, uh, the Muratorian canon had included 24 books of the Old Testament, but some of them were a a combination, like Judges and Ruth was one book. Okay, So when I say they accepted the 39 books, it's not in the same order that you have them today, but all 39 books were there. Okay, So early on, I'm talking way back, Song of Solomon, all those books, even though they seem to be difficult to understand, they were all contained in what the Hebrews believed was the canon of Scripture given by God to them. Any others? Praise the Lord. No, no, one more. Go ahead. No problem. Sure, sure. Well, uh, some of you will read what's called the message, and you'll get inspired by certain, well, some of you are saying, no, I don't get inspired by that. Zach was saying that. I'm not surprised Zach would say that. <laughs> but I just say that to you to let you know that there is a difference between a wooden, literal translation and a paraphrase or a dynamic equivalent or a thought-for-thought translation. Okay? Um, are you all thoroughly confused? But KJV, New King James Version, NASB, RSV, uh, Holman, uh, English Standard, which I preach from, and there are several other translations. I particularly like the NASB better for Old Testament than I do the ESV. That's just, that's just the way I am looking at the translation. But here's the deal. Those are wooden literal. Like you put out those variant readings and it is a word-for-word translation. That's the kind of Bible you need to be doing your in-depth Bible study with and that you ought to bring to church with you as I'm preaching. You need to have a wooden literal translation. The NIV is a dynamic equivalent. It's not on the level of a wooden literal translation. There's some liberty taken there with translation. Uh, Some of it I don't like. It's not a bad translation. Uh, It's just not a wooden literal. Then you have a thought for thought. And the best thought for thought translation period is the NLT. That's the New Living Translation. Why is that a great translation? Because a team of Bible scholars did that one. Not one person. The message was by one person. The Living Bible... Do not, please, do not mistake the New Living Translation with the Living Bible. The Living Bible is not even a thought for thought, is a paraphrase and not a good Bible translation. Okay? Does that help you a little bit? Any more specifics on that? So, is it okay to read the Living Bible? Yeah, devotionally, but it would almost be like the Shepherd of Hermes, that's an apocryphal book. Read that for devotion, but read the Bible (laughs) for your study. Okay? All right, any others? Y'all look different with glasses on. I see, I see y'all doing things I've never seen before. No, I'm kidding. Sammy, what do you think? Have I talked enough? Oh, yeah. 
Yes, sir. Well, why the apocryphal books were added by the Catholic Church? I, you know, in, in what I studied, I didn't really look at that. But the primary, and you may can address this, but the primary reason, I suppose, on the surface, you have to understand with Catholicism, that they accept traditions as equal with Holy Scripture. And that would be my take on it just off the top of my head, that, you know, some of these writings... Yeah, they came from early church fathers and or association with the church. But old doesn't mean inspired. And I could have gone in all of this with you tonight, but I chose not to. But there are some things that we have to say that's not good enough just to say because something is old. There's a lot of old literature, but that doesn't mean it's inspired literature. So keep in mind that when they added those books to, the, uh, to their canon of Scripture for Catholic Church or Greek Orthodox... They believe those writings to be equal with Genesis through Revelation. And they hold their traditions of the Catholic Church as equal with Scripture. Uh, we, uh, Timothy had a real close friend uh, that went to school with him at, uh, in Alabama. And we would talk to him. And I thought, man, we're, getting, we're making progress, progress, progress. But then, all of a sudden, one day I was talking to him, and I challenged him on the few issues of Scripture. I said, well, what does the Bible say here? What does the Bible say here? Yeah, I get that, get that. But then he started saying, well, traditions say this. And I said, well, you're telling me you take the traditions over, the written Word of God? Yes. So, here's the deal. When it comes down to deciding between the Bible that we accept, that's why it's not just okay to say Catholicism is okay. It's not okay. It's not okay if, if they're accepting what's not the Scripture, it's not okay if they believe they're saved by grace plus works. It's not okay if they believe every time they partake of Mass that the Son of God is being crucified over and over again. That's not okay. Okay? So, um, so Eric, you want to add anything to that? Exactly. That's where some of their teaching comes that's antithetical to the Holy Word of God. That's why some of these principles that they bring out, like purgatory or sacramental things, uh, don't fit what we have from Genesis to Revelation. So therefore, it was nixed early. And what I'm trying to get you to understand is that the early church never even thought about accepting those books. Period. Until you get to the 1500s and the, and the Catholic Church did. All right. Thanks, Eric. All right. <laughs> Go ahead. Among those 5,000 manuscripts that differed 0.5%, uh -huh. what kind of stuff differed? It's just going to be scribal error, scribal flaw, like uh, a, a word that may have a look, little bit of inflection to a meaning that could be a little different. But when I say that 99%, it's never on any major doctrinal issue, period. It's just... When you're, trans, when you're translating from one thing to another, and what can stop that is variant readings. When you have over 5,000 of them, I mean, folks, I'm just telling you, it's a remarkable thing that you can hold a copy of the Word of God in your hands and to know that you've got that many manuscripts, that more manuscripts than anything we ever had in history of writing, period. So it's, not, it's never a doctrinal issue ever. It's just, you know, I could give you some examples because I, I would come back and maybe talk to you about some of these apocryphal books. Because devotionally, 
they may add some devotion to your life, but it's not the Word of God. Okay? So let me come back to that, Craig, and I may can give a couple of examples. Apocrypha means hidden books. So in other words, they think, when you use those terminology, they were books that were hidden for X amount of years that should have been included in the, into the canon but were not. We would say they were hidden for good reason. <laughs> you know, we would say they should never have been in, in, involved. And we never have had a Protestant Bible that contained the apocryphal writings, if I'm not mistaken. All right. Any others? You got more than you bargained for tonight, right? David, were you able to send out? Did we push out anything? Yeah. Okay, good. All right. But I'm not sure the lady that asked that first question is here tonight, but we'll let her, we'll let her hear the tape. All right. Yeah, let me. Uh, no, it's okay. Um, well, some of them, such as uh, it's disputed by some of those. Uh, these, the books listed are Book of Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, Tobit, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, Esther, Daniel. Now, some of these things are additions to already existing books. And it's pretty clear that when you look at an addition, it doesn't jihad with the original. You, it, you can come up, it doesn't take long to figure that out that something's not working right. Um, Barak, one through six, letter to Jeremiah. Prayer of Manasseh. Uh, if you know that there is in the book of Jude an allusion to the assumption of Moses, isn't that right? Which would have been devotional but not canonical scripture. So, yeah, some of those books, I can help you with that too. Uh, or we can do research, but you can figure out who they give the, you know, the nod to, that who would have authored some of these books. But again, there are 11 that have been accepted, accepted 12 Perhaps if you put Barak and the letters of Jeremiah together, instead of separately, you would have 11 instead of 12. I hope that helped you some. 